Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. A lot happened in part one, so let's do a quick recap. Robert Lee Yates Jr., the cold, calculating, psychopathic serial killer and necrophile, is escalating in his deviant behavior. He started out by murdering good friends from Walla Walla, Patrick Oliver and Susan Savage in 1975. Although there was no indication that Susan was sexually assaulted at the autopsy, she could have been performing oral sex when he shot her in the head, just like Christine Smith, the lone survivor. We also found out that he murdered Stacy E. Hahn in 1988 in Skagit County near his hometown of Oak Harbor and Shannon R. Zielinski in 1996 and Heather Hernandez in 1997, two of his first known victims from East Sprague in Spokane. After the murders of Susan and Patrick and prior to his hitting the streets in Spokane, the following individuals were murdered. Sherry Palmer in 1992 in Spokane, Patricia L. Barnes in 1995 in Kitsap County, and Terayon Corbett in 1996 near Fort Rucker in Alabama. Yates is still suspected by some in law enforcement, but they don't have evidence to charge him or anyone else in these cases. Sherry Palmer really sounds like a Yates victim to me. In fact, as of March 2021, these cases have never been solved, no one has ever been charged, and they are considered cold cases. Yolanda Sapp, Nikki Lowe, and Kathy Brebois were murdered in 1990 and dumped along the Spokane River. For quite some time after Yates was arrested, he was considered a strong suspect. Eventually, the real murderer was identified as Douglas slash Donna Perry. Perry was the person who had undergone gender reassignment surgery. Yates is not on law enforcement radar yet, and murders and body dumps are becoming more frequent. But detectives will eventually narrow down their search to one man, Robert Lee Yates Jr. In part one, we left off with detectives finding two bodies in one day. So let's get back to the story. On that very same Tuesday of August 26th, 1997, the same day Heather Hernandez was found, another badly decomposed body was found dumped in some long grass on an alfalfa farm. While the owners were bailing their alfalfa, they could smell the smell of death the owners of the farm found a body lying in some long grass not far from a tree that had a no trespassing sign posted on it. The body appeared to be female, but was very badly decomposed so they couldn't be positive. The skin looked like leather 
and the body was infested with maggots. Eventually, the body of 16-year-old Jennifer A. Joseph was identified using fingerprints. Jennifer's mother was Korean and her dad was in the army. Growing up an army brat, she traveled the world with her dad. At the location where her body was found, crime scene investigators recovered a light blue towel, long-sleeved blouse or dress that was missing a mother-of-pearl button, and was unzipped and pulled up to the shoulder area. Also found near the body were a black brassiere, black full-length pants, two shoes, panties, a portion of a radio antenna, and a used yellow condom. Her body was nude from the waist down. Based on drag marks found in the grass, it appeared as though she had been killed at another location and then transported to the area where her body was found. This was similar to previous victims. During her autopsy, it was noted that Joseph's fingernails and toenails were painted with a polish that contained glitter, fragments of which were found on other parts of her body. Three stud-type earrings with small, pale stones were present in her left ear, but only two were found in her right ear, indicating that one may have been lost in her ordeal with her killer. The cause of death was multiple gunshot wounds from a 22 caliber handgun. She had one shot in her chest, one in her shoulder, and one directly behind her left ear. Detectives spoke to another prostitute who had been working with Jennifer in the East Sprague area, and she last saw Jennifer Joseph alive at 11.35 p.m. 10 days earlier on August 16th. This person said the last time she saw Jennifer, she was traveling eastbound on Thor in the company of a white male, approximately 30 to 40 years old, in a car believed to have been a white Corvette. This car would be the first real lead in the case that could help tie any of the victims to a suspect. On September 24, 1997, one month after Jennifer Joseph was last seen in a white Corvette, Yates was actually stopped for speeding. He was driving his white Corvette, but police accidentally marked it on the report as a Camaro. This meant that the car and its driver were not brought to the attention of the investigators. They were looking for a white Corvette, not a white Camaro. It was November 5, 1997, just two months after finding the bodies of Heather Hernandez and Jennifer Joseph. Another badly decomposed body was found in the vicinity of South Hangman Valley Road. It was confirmed that this person was killed elsewhere and then transported to the stump site by vehicle. The body had been buried in a shallow grave near a small stream. In the grave, investigators found two plastic bags and one blouse. No purse, wallet, or money was found. The autopsy revealed that this was a white female and her cause of death was two gunshot wounds to the head. The size of her wounds suggested the gun used to kill her was a 25 caliber or smaller. They also collected oral, anal, and vaginal swabs. Within the week, on November 12, 1997, using dental records, the body was positively identified as 29-year-old Darla Sue Scott, born on September 18, 1968. 
Investigators were able to ascertain that Darla did have a history of prostitution and illegal drug use. From the book Body Count by Burl Bear, he recounts an interview Darla gave. It wasn't clear who was conducting the interview, but she openly discussed her life as a prostitute. One of the things she mentioned, quote, was that she never dated guys who smoked crack. She stated that if they smoke too much crack, they can't get an erection. If they can't get an erection, they get mad. If they get mad, they take it out on you, and that is very dangerous. You are likely to get beat up or worse because some guy can't get it up. Unfortunately, 17 months after this interview, Darla was murdered by a guy who couldn't get it up. At least not while she was alive. After she was dead, no problem. Another body was found just one month after Darla Sue Scott's body was found. This body was found in Tacoma, which is in western Washington. It was a Sunday afternoon on December 7, 1997, when police received a call regarding a body found on the 5,000 block of South Adams Street at 1.30 p.m. The body was identified as Melinda Mercer, a 34-year-old white female. She lived in Seattle, worked there as a part-time waitress, and had a history of prostitution and drug abuse. She turned to prostitution in November of 1997 to support her heroin addiction. She was last seen alive on the night of December 6, 1997, leaving a Seattle tavern. She was wearing a tank top, a brassiere, a floral skirt, shoes, a denim jacket, and a black coat, and she was carrying a large green purse. According to the testimony of a friend, Mercer left the tavern to go to Aurora Avenue to make money for a heroin buy. On the following morning, Melinda's nude body was found in some blackberry bushes in a vacant lot in Tacoma, a lot used as a dump site for garbage. Some of her clothing had been thrown on top of her, but her purse and jewelry were never recovered. Her autopsy the next day on December 8, 1997, revealed that she had been shot three times in the back left side of the head. Only one of the three bullets penetrated her brain, but it did so without affecting the areas that control consciousness and motor response. Found nearby was a 25 caliber shell casing. Bloodstains on her blouse indicated that she had been fully dressed and upright when she was shot in the head. She may have been performing oral sex like Christine Smith, the one surviving victim. After shooting her, the killer encased her head in four plastic grocery bags. The two outer bags contained very little blood, but blood had pooled inside the two inner bags. Melinda's nostrils and upper lip were visible through small tears in the two inner bags, which had been partially drawn into Melinda's mouth. The holes suggested that Melinda was alive when the bags were tied over her head and that she had used her teeth to create the holes in an effort to breathe and or free herself. Although Melinda could have died solely from the gunshot wounds, suffocation from the plastic bags would have sped up her death. Oral, anal, and vaginal swabs were also taken. Toxicology tests revealed that she had used cocaine and opiates prior to her death. Melinda Mercer had no ties to Tacoma. She shouldn't have been there. 
She was last seen by acquaintances in Seattle. But what nobody knew yet is that Yates was working out of Fort Lewis Army Base that weekend, which is right at the Tacoma City limits, and about 50 miles from Seattle, less than an hour's drive. He could have easily driven north on I-5, picked up Melinda in Seattle, and brought her back to Tacoma with him. On Wednesday, December 17, 1997, just one week before Christmas and 10 days after Melinda Mercer's body was found in Tacoma, another body is found. This body was found in the same area of Spokane where Darla Sue Scott's body had been found a month earlier, back on November 5th on Hangman Valley Road. The body had been tossed over the side of a steep embankment where it rolled down the hill and came to rest about 25 feet from the edge of the road. The body was fully clothed and had two plastic shopping bags tied over its head. No purse, wallet, or money was recovered. A vehicle was used to transport the victim to the spot where the body was dumped. Crime scene investigators recovered a number of hairs and fibers from the body, which were sent to the state crime lab for processing. Just a few days later, on December 22, 1997, an autopsy was performed, and the victim was identified as Sean L. Johnson, born March 3, 1961. Investigators were able to discover that Sean was involved in prostitution and illegal drugs. The cause of her death was determined to be two gunshot wounds to the head, and both projectiles were recovered. Oral, anal, and vaginal swabs were also obtained. Sean was last seen leaving a home in northeast Spokane two months earlier on the evening of October 17th to work as a prostitute in the East Sprague area. She was supposed to have called her roommate later on that evening, but she never did. She wasn't seen again until her body was found. Her car was actually found in a Kmart parking lot on East Sprague on October 19th just two days after she disappeared. It was reported as abandoned by a store employee, but was not taken into evidence by law enforcement until December 23rd. It wasn't until they realized Sean was a victim of the Spokane serial killer that they impounded her car to gather evidence. Evidence processing produced a number of items, including hair and fibers. Lori Wason, was on a list of missing women who were possible victims of the Spokane serial killer and maintained by law enforcement. This list included Darla Sue Scott and Sean Johnson. The day before Christmas, another name was added to the list, Sonny Oster. The day after Christmas, Lori Wason and Sean McClenahan were found dead on the 4800 block of East 14th Avenue in Spokane. On Friday, December 26, 1997, at 2 p.m., their bodies were found lying head-to-head -head with their legs protruding out from some old soggy leaves in a gully. The person who found them quickly realized there were too many legs to be just one person. The bodies appeared to have been there for some time. Unlike many of the previous bodies, these two were fully clothed, except that they were both missing their shoes. No purse, wallet or money was recovered. It was determined that Lori Wason was wearing a black trench coat when she was last seen, and Sean McClenahan was wearing a blue nylon coat. 
Both coats were missing from their bodies and were never recovered. It was also believed that the women were killed at one location and then transported by vehicle to this site where their bodies were dumped, along with the vegetation and debris. So one weird thing that investigators noticed about the dump site was the vegetation thrown over the bodies. It didn't match the area. Vegetation like birch, rose, hydrangea, and chrysanthemum, among others. Both bodies were covered with the same green waste that looked like it came from someone's yard. It was definitely out of place. They also found soil, rocks, concrete pieces, wood pieces, white paint chips, a red dyed feather, peanut shells, cherry pits, and a plastic plant identification tag like that found on a plant at a nursery that read Sweet William. Detectives thought that the debris in the plant material may have been brought from the suspect's home or other place that he had access to. They really felt that this might provide a clue to help identify a possible killer. During their autopsies, the victims were identified using their fingerprints as Laurel A. Wason, 31, born January 22, 1966, and Sean A. McClenahan, 39, born May 30, 1958. An investigation into each woman's background revealed they were both involved in illegal drugs and prostitution. Oral, anal, and vaginal swabs were collected from both victims. The autopsies revealed that both victims were shot twice on the left side of the head with a 25 caliber handgun. They each had contact wounds right behind the jaw by their ear. Both women had two bullets lodged in their heads. Each victim had three grocery bags tied around their head. Law enforcement was beginning to pay much closer attention to the actual bags by now. The bags came from a large variety of stores, including Kmart, Albertsons, and Safeway. The crime lab examined the bags and actually found a fingerprint and a palm print on one of the bags wrapped around Sean McClenahan's head. It was the palm print of the serial killer. Lori Wason was married and had a 12-year-old son at the time she was killed. Her family stated that she left home on October 13, 1997 and never returned. Both women were known to struggle with addiction to drugs. Since both women had returned to sex work, it was clear to their families they were using again and needed to support their habits. Lori managed to stay clean from her heroin addiction for six years, but was pulled back in two years prior to her death. During the autopsy, she was found to have heroin in her system. They also learned that Lori had been dead a lot longer than Sean even though they were found at the same place, same time. Sean McClenahan had intermittent periods of being clean, but as it is with so many, addiction never forgets. She also worked for an escort agency, the same one as Darla Sue Scott. Sean was last seen when she ran into an acquaintance on Christmas Eve, and she told this person that she was gonna to try to get into a methadone program to help her quit heroin. She was going to call this friend later that night to talk some more, but the call never came. Her body was found two days later with Lori Wason. On Sunday, February 28, 1998, two months after discovering the bodies of Lori Wason, 
and Sean McClanahan, another body is found. She appeared to be a white female and was discovered in a ditch on the 17,000 block of South Graham Road in a rural area of Spokane. The autopsy revealed that the body belonged to 41-year-old Sonny Gail Oster, born August 7, 1956. Sonny's body was fully clothed and a pair of shoes had been discarded near the body. No purse, wallet, or money was recovered. A vehicle was used to transport the victim to the site where the body was dumped. Sonny Oster had three plastic bags tied to her head, two gunshot wounds to the head, and one bullet was recovered. Oral, anal, and vaginal swabs were obtained. Subsequent investigation revealed that like the prior victims, Sonny was also involved with prostitution and illegal drugs. She had three plastic bags tied over her head, which would have suffocated her eventually, but the actual cause of death is two gunshot wounds to the head. The last time anyone saw Sonny alive was on November 1st, 1997, while she was working as a prostitute on East Sprague. She was seen at the first step services where women could go when they needed help. Friends believed she had been carrying a beige purse, which was not located. At the time of her death, she was the mother of two boys and just wanted a normal life. Like the other women who became victims of Yates, they all had families who truly loved them. Sunny went over to Spokane to enter a drug rehab facility. Her dad didn't want her to go all the way over to Spokane rehab. He wanted her to go to one closer to home in Western Washington so they could visit her. Sonny was adamant that the American Behavioral Health System, a Salvation Army facility in Spokane, was the one she needed to go to to fight her cocaine addiction. Unfortunately, she didn't complete the program and when her family didn't hear from her, they phoned the police. Sonny was reported missing by her family on Christmas Eve of 1997 just two months prior to her body being found. On Wednesday, April 1st, 1998, the body of a white female was found on the 4800 block of East 14th Avenue within 50 yards from where the body of Laurel Wason and Sean McClanahan were located. The fact that this body was found in such close proximity to where Lori Wason and Sean McClanahan's bodies were found prompted investigators to wonder if the killer was using the site as a cluster dump site. However, an exhaustive search of the area failed to turn up any additional bodies. It was determined that a vehicle was used to transport the victim and debris to the site where the body was dumped. Similar to Laurel Wason and Sean McClenahan, the body had been covered with the same type of foreign plant and miscellaneous debris, which did not belong in the area. This reinforced the theory that detectives had where they thought the serial killer had brought the material from his own home. The autopsy was performed on April 4, 1998. The victim was identified by fingerprints as 34-year-old Linda M. Mabin, born on April 4, 1963. No purse, wallet, or money was recovered. Linda's head was covered with two plastic bags. Her cause of death was determined to be a single gunshot wound to the head and one bullet was recovered. 
oral, anal, and vaginal swabs were collected in addition to a pinkish-colored condom found protruding from the victim's rectum. Linda's body was fully clothed, and there were remnants of plastic bags in the area of her head. The body was badly decomposed and showed signs of animal activity. It was obvious that it had been there for some time. The animal damage and degree of decomposition fit with the time Linda was last seen, which had been on November 21st, 1997, four months prior to her body being found. There was a record of her being contacted by a police officer on East Sprague that day. It was possible that she had been seen the following night, but that couldn't be confirmed. She was reported missing on November 29, 1997 by a Spokane County Health District employee that worked with prostitutes in the area. Additional investigation showed that Linda was involved in prostitution and known to use illegal drugs particularly crack cocaine. Acquaintances told the police that she usually carried a pipe for smoking crack tucked inside her pants in her pelvic region. However, the pipe was not found. Only a folded paper towel was recovered from this area of her body. She was also known to carry a purple velvet drawstring bag, like the kind you get with the Crown Royal whiskey, but that was never found. On Tuesday, July 7th, 1998, about three months after Linda Mabin's body was found, the body of a nude white female was found in a vacant lot near 218 North Crestline in Spokane. It was determined that a vehicle was used to transport the victim to the site where the body was dumped. Recovered at the scene from the victim's hair was a 25 caliber auto casing. No purse, wallet, or money was recovered. The body had been covered with grass, a piece of styrofoam, and two hot tub covers. Detectives determined that these items had come from a pile of debris in the vacant lot. The autopsy revealed the victim was 47-year-old Michelle Lynn J. Durning, born February 14, 1951. She had a history of prostitution and illegal drug use. Her cause of death was determined to be a gunshot wound to the head, although no bullet was recovered. Toxicology results revealed the presence of methamphetamine in her body. Oral, anal, and vaginal swabs were obtained. Michelle Indurning was a former executive secretary. Her mother died of cancer in 1991, and she was her mother's caregiver during that period. After her mother died, Michelle Lynn's health and happiness began to rapidly decline. She began using drugs and was homeless for a while. Finally, Michelle Lynn came to Spokane to be with a friend and try to get her life back together. She was working hard to get back on track, but she didn't get a chance to finish what she started. She was last seen on July 4, 1998 in Spokane. Michelle Lynn had made plans to meet up with a friend for the weekend and spend time at Priest Lake. She never arrived. On August 1st, 1998, a month after finding Michelle Lynn Durning's body, Yates attempted to murder Christine L. Smith. Christine is the young woman we heard about in the beginning of the episode. She is the only known victim to have survived. 
During this time period, he is also seeing a woman named Aloha Ingram. Ingram is a young woman working as a prostitute in the area. They saw each other regularly for over one year. They did drugs together and had sex. According to Ingram, Yates had no problem with impotence. This woman actually considered Yates to be a boyfriend more than a customer. On September 19, 1998, Yates actually had another run-in with the police. He was pulled over for a traffic violation and during this encounter, he was asked to provide a DNA sample. Apparently, this was a common practice in Spokane at the time. Yates refused, stating that he thought it was too extreme. As much as I don't care for Yates, providing DNA at a traffic stop does seem a little extreme. On September 24, 1998, a composite sketch of the serial killer is released to the public. It was actually created a few years earlier as a result of the Patricia Barnes murder. She is the woman whose body was found in Kitsap County back in 1995. They weren't sure at the time if Patricia Barnes was a victim of the Spokane serial killer, but there were enough similarities for law enforcement to seriously consider the possibility. By November of 1998, law enforcement actually had the DNA and palm print from the serial killer. This was kept under wraps and not shared with the public. Yates had another encounter with the police on November 10th in 1998. He picked up Jennifer Robinson, a prostitute, and agreed to pay $20 for oral sex. As they drove off, police pulled Yates over. Jennifer, the prostitute he picked up, created a story telling the police that Yates was a friend of her dad's and he was just giving her a ride home. Well, we will never know if Yates was planning to kill Jennifer, but if he was, he didn't go through with it after being pulled over. In December of 1998, Yates is steadily draining the family checking account with repeated trips to the ATM. When his wife Linda demanded an explanation, he basically told her to shut up and get a job. There was no way Linda could know that Yates was spending all of their money on crack and prostitutes. It was around the same time that Yates confessed to Linda that he was struggling with impotence and is getting very frustrated by his inability to achieve an erection. Maybe it was the crack, I don't know. He wanted to get some Viagra, but Linda nixed that idea. What she didn't know was that Yates is obsessed with sex and can't stop thinking about it. I couldn't find any information as to whether Yates actually ever got his hands on any Viagra. Melody Ann Murphin was reported missing in 1998. Detectives made sure she was always regularly included in the Spokane serial killer victim list. Melody came from a loving family and had at least two daughters. She was also a sex worker and a known drug addict working on East Sprague in Spokane. After Yates was arrested in an attempt to avoid the death penalty, he admitted to killing Melody Murphin. As part of his plea bargain, he told police where she was buried and provided them with a map. Using the map provided by Yates, her body was eventually found on October 18, 2000, buried in the yard of the Yates family home at 600 S Napa in Spokane. 
Yates had buried Melody Murfin directly under the bedroom window which he shared with his wife, Linda. Although authorities searched the yard after his arrest, they only found Melody's body when Yates provided them with a map pinpointing its location. Her head was wrapped in three plastic bags. She had been shot in the head and buried about 34 inches deep. There were three pieces of jewelry found on her body, a musical note earring, a dolphin earring, and an eagle pendant. These would help with her identification. According to court documents, Yates killed her as he had all the others and perhaps even had sex with the dead body as he had had with some of the others, but he decided he wasn't done. He thought this victim deserved a special burial. Yates claimed that he planted her there because he wanted to see her every day. On December 7, 1997, the body of Melinda Mercer was found in Tacoma, which is in Pierce County. Close to 11 months later, on October 13, 1998, a search and rescue dog was engaged in an unrelated search in Pierce County, discovered another body. This time, the body is found near the 1700 block of 108th Street South in Tacoma, in Western Washington. The body was a white female, decomposed, and about 10 feet down an embankment in a green belt used as a dump site. The degree of decomposition suggested that the body had been dead about a month. The body had three plastic bags tied over its head. The victim had sustained a gunshot wound to the head. The body was clothed in jeans, a blouse, and socks, but no undergarments. On October 14, 1998, an autopsy was performed. Using fingerprint analysis, the victim was identified as 35-year-old Connie L. Ellis, born August 21, 1963. Her cause of death was a single gunshot wound to the left side of her head with one bullet recovered. The wound was consistent with a 25 caliber bullet. Her head was encased in three plastic grocery bags. Oral, anal, and vaginal swabs were obtained. These swabs, including casings, hairs, and fibers, were all submitted to the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab for examination. Pierce County investigators determined that Connie Ellis had a history of illegal drug usage and prostitution. She basically worked as a prostitute to support her heroin addiction, like many of the other victims of the Spokane serial killer. She also tried numerous times to beat her heroin addiction. In fact, Ellis had re-entered a methadone treatment program on September 8, 1998. Connie Ellis had two children, but both died tragically. One son died because he couldn't get a transplant in time and died of heart problems. Her other son died of sudden infant death syndrome. These two deaths most likely contributed to Connie's struggles in life. Connie was last seen alive on September 17, 1998, when she received a dose of methadone at the clinic. A urinalysis taken at that time revealed that she was again using heroin. The level of decomposition in Connie Ellis's body coincides with the estimated time since death being about a month. 
Detectives in Pierce County were fully aware of the murders involving prostitutes in Spokane. They also knew the killer was moving around the state. Pierce County detectives called the detectives in Spokane to let them know of their latest discovery. After comparing notes, it was clear to them that this was another Spokane serial killer victim. The bodies of Connie L. Ellis and Melinda Mercer were both found near Fort Lewis, which is near Tacoma, where Yates served as a helicopter pilot in the Washington National Guard. He was there once a month for training. On November 12, 1998, Yates got into an argument with his 19-year-old daughter and threatened her with physical violence. She was scared enough to call the police. The police came out to the house but only issued a citation for misdemeanor assault, but the charges were later dropped. March 17, 1999. Yates picked up a local prostitute named Cheryl Sickerman. Because of the Spokane serial killer, her boyfriend had been logging vehicle license plates and descriptions for each one of Cheryl's customers. Fortunately, Yates did not harm Cheryl, and her boyfriend now had a record of Yates's car picking up a prostitute in the area. Yates is unraveling. By June of 1999, Yates was careening out of control. His finances were a disaster, he was lying to his wife, his drug use was escalating, and included crack, meth, and heroin. This is a very big deal for someone who didn't smoke, drink, or do drugs for the better part of his life. And he was suffering more and more from impotence, except when he practiced necrophilia. In September of 1999, Spokane police had developed a list of individuals known to be connected to prostitution on East Sprague, either through traffic violations or criminal behavior. Yates's name was on that list with hundreds of others. He was asked to come down to the station to provide a DNA sample as a way to clear himself. It was completely voluntary. On September 15, 1999, Yates actually turned up at the police station. He adamantly denied that he used the services of prostitutes on East Sprague when asked by detectives. Detectives also noticed that Yates seemed very nervous, could not provide alibis, and when they asked him about his white Camaro, he corrected them and told them it was a Corvette. Back in 1997, when he got pulled over for a traffic violation, the police officer wrote down Camaro when he meant to write down Corvette. Yates declined to provide a blood sample for DNA at the time, stating he wanted to think about it. Although it was voluntary, this made detectives suspicious. Three days later, Yates called the detectives and told them he would definitely not be submitting a sample. This suspicious behavior plus the fact that he owned a white Corvette, put Yates on a short list. Detectives at this time decided to go hunting for his Corvette. In January of 2000, the current owner of Yates's white Corvette is tracked down. A search warrant was obtained for the Corvette that Yates used to own on April 10, 2000. They found fibers from the carpet of the Corvette which matched fibers found on Jennifer Joseph's body they found blood stains under the passenger seat, which were identified as Jennifer's, and miraculously, 
Under the passenger seat, a button was recovered. Not just any button, but the mother of pearl button, which was missing when her body was found. These new discoveries gave detectives the evidence they needed to arrest Yates for Jennifer Joseph's murder. Around this same time, Linda Yates was becoming very upset. They were running out of money. She could see that Yates was going to the ATM repeatedly, and he couldn't or wouldn't explain what he spent the money on. In fact, Yates told Linda again she needed to get a job. Yates needed money to pay for his crack use in prostitutes. Even the prostitutes he picked up were wondering what the hell his wife must be thinking. He's out all night, doing drugs, going back to the ATM and getting 200 plus a visit. On April 15, 2000, Linda Yates asked her husband about a $600 discrepancy between the bank statement and their checkbook. She was understandably angry and confused about how this could have happened. She also wanted him to explain all the credit card charges from Al's Spa Tub Motel, which dated back several months to December of 1999. Yates's response to Linda's question was to break down crying and sobbing. He told Linda he had a gambling problem and that he needed her help. With regard to Al's Spa Tub Motel, Yates said he went there after his grueling shift at Kaiser Aluminum to soak his muscles. Linda wasn't buying any of it, but her worst suspicion was that he was cheating on her. She claimed that he cried and blubbered. She walked out. She said she had a sense of impending doom, but serial killer was not a conclusion she ever considered. Yates is arrested. On April 17th, 2000. The Yates home was under surveillance with the intention of arresting him for the murder of 16-year-old Jennifer Joseph. They watched the house all afternoon and all through the night. The next morning on April 18, 2000, on his way to work, Yates is pulled over into a church parking lot and arrested. As he was being handcuffed, officers explained why he was being arrested and he was not the least bit concerned. On the way to the police station, Yates sat in the back seat and began to chat idly to officers about his early retirement and his job at Kaiser. Not what you might expect from someone who has just been arrested for murder. While Yates is busy getting booked into the jail on murder charges, his current employer, Kaiser, called Linda to ask why her husband wasn't at work. Linda was immediately irate and suspicious. She was convinced that Yates was having an affair and she was going to catch him red-handed. Based on the receipts from Al's Spa Tub Motel that Yates lied to Linda about, she figured that Yates was probably there now with another woman. She actually drove to the motel but didn't find him. From there, she went to a nearby Burger King to grab a cup of coffee and gather her thoughts. It was here that she was approached by detectives and asked to come to the station. Linda went with the detectives and based on the book, Body Count, proclaimed, quote, if this is about Bob, I'm gonna kill him, unquote. When Linda was told that her husband had been arrested for murder and was suspected of being the Spokane serial killer, Linda was shocked 
to put it mildly, the family was not allowed to go back to their house after Yates had been arrested. The police were preparing to do a complete search of the property, inside and out. Instead, Linda and the kids were all taken to a hotel by the police. The police brought Linda and the kids everything they needed, including their two pet cats. The youngest child, their little boy, became terrified of his father once he was aware of what was going on. The family really had no idea what Yates had been up to or what he was really like. Yates strikes a deal. Given all the evidence and number of victims, detectives felt that this was a perfect death penalty case. It was a major surprise to find out the Spokane County Prosecutor, Steve Tucker, made an extremely controversial plea agreement with Yates. In this plea agreement, Yates would confess to 10 murders in Spokane, two in Pierce County, two in Walla Walla, and one in Skagit County, and the attempted murder of Christine Smith. But he would never have to face the death penalty or a jury for the Spokane killings. Tucker claimed that he made this agreement to save the family's grief. At the time he made this plea deal, there was still a lot of evidence that had not been analyzed yet. It was believed that he made this deal prematurely and without all the facts. Yates was also supposed to answer questions from detectives about the murders, tell them about his three handguns, his vehicles, and draw a map explaining where they could find the body of Melody Murphan. Pierce County prosecutors in Tacoma were not willing to make that deal. When they found out, they pulled out of the plea deal. Pierce County prosecutors moved forward on their own with a trial jury for the murders of Connie Ellis and Melinda Mercer. And they asked for the death penalty. Based on this, Yates and the Spokane County prosecutor, Steve Tucker, revised the plea agreement. Yates no longer needed to talk with detectives about his crimes, and he wouldn't have to tell them about the murder weapons. One of the detectives on the case said a plea deal like this is unheard of. When a defendant pleads guilty, they are typically required to answer all questions about the murders. Yates would not talk about the murder weapons, but the firearm evidence from Sean Johnson, Lori Wason, Sean McClanahan, and Sonny Oster, and Linda Mabin indicated that each of the victims was shot with the same 25 caliber weapon. DNA provided the link between Yates and the following 10 women, but thanks to his plea agreement, he wasn't required to answer a single question regarding their murders. Melinda Mercer, Shannon Zielinski, Jennifer Joseph, Darla Scott, Sean Johnson, Lori Wason, Sonny Oster, Linda Mabin, Michelle Lynn Durning, Sean McClanahan. With the plea deal, Yates agreed to plead guilty to 13 murders and spend the rest of his life in prison. He was sentenced to 408 years for the crimes he pleaded guilty to. He will remain in prison for the rest of his life, no matter how long he lives. In Pierce County, he was convicted for both murders of Connie Ellis and Melinda Mercer, receiving the death penalty. 
but he will not have to face the death penalty until he has completed serving his 408 years for Spokane. Apparently, Spokane convicted him first, so he has to serve out that sentence first. At his sentencing hearing in Spokane, Yates read a statement in court where he apologized to the victim's families, but there was not one single ounce of sincerity in that statement. One of the prosecutors stated that if Yates were truly sorry, he would not have used the location of Melody Murphin's body as a bargaining chip. And he would have provided details on his crimes, including information about the murder weapons, vehicles, and details of the crimes themselves. In the same old story we've heard so many times before, Yates claims he has reconnected to the church and to God. Some people call it Jailhouse Jesus. Yates has no interest in God or the church unless it can help him further his own cause in some way. If he were truly repentant and truly reconnected to his church and God, then he would stop the appeals and provide whatever information law enforcement or families want. But he won't do that. He doesn't care about his victims or their families. In fact, he doesn't care about his own family. Yates only cares about himself. Because there was no jury trial and because of his plea bargain, we may never know what really happened or get any details from Yates. He has not told the police exactly how or where he committed his crimes, and we have no way of knowing what his state of mind was. Yates is currently serving his 408-year sentence in the Walla Walla State Penitentiary. The complete list of Yates's known victims are as follows. From Walla Walla, Friends, Patrick Oliver and Susan Savage. From Skagit County, Stacy Hahn. From Tacoma in Pierce County, Connie L. Ellis and Melinda Mercer. From Spokane, Shannon Zielinski, Jennifer Joseph, Heather Hernandez, Darla Sue Scott, Sean Johnson, Lori Wason, Sonny Oster, Linda Mabin, Melody Murphan, Michelle Lynn Durning, Sean McClenahan, and Christine L. Smith, the one and only survivor. And that will do it. Thanks for joining me once again on Crime Happens. (gasps) 